This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. And we're asking, are you burnt out with so many struggling with burnout today? We found out some of the reasons behind it. Are you at risk and what can you do to deal with it? Dr. Sarah Rasmi, a clinical psychologist, was on hand, as well as Emma Burdett from Wild sharing her own experiences of it. And if undetected sleep apnea could be leading to some dangerous conditions and even death, just as it did with Layla bin Harib's mother. We were also unpacking sleep apnea with consultant ENT Dr. Issam speaking to us why people suffer and if it can ever be cured. Plus, Ludmilla Malava was on hand answering your questions in our legal clinic from does a bank automatically freeze your accounts if you change jobs? And if you are resigning, do you have to pay back your recruitment costs? All of that and more. We are talking burnout this afternoon. Uh, Jacinda Arden is the latest big name to step back from her position, citing exactly that. But it's her decision enough to finally move the needle on workplace mental health. Here she is. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life. But I'm not leaving because it was hard. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. I am human. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can, and then it's time. And for me, it's time. Jacinda Arden then, and about 40% of employees say they're burnt out, according to an October report um, out of the US by Slack's Future Form Pulse. Uh, this is quarterly survey, around 10,000. This is an 8% jump up from last May. So it seems like we do have something of a new epidemic and it's not COVID-19. We are bringing in Dr. Sarah Rasmi now, licensed psychologist, managing director of Thrive Wellbeing Centre to help us define it and deal with it. Dr. Sarah, I just want to start by saying happy birthday. How are you today? I'm good and you, thank you for the birthday wishes. You're very, you're very well. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. It's funny when you think about burnout because I definitely have had moments of it, but what we're talking about today is more prolonged and I wondered if you're able to define it with your professional hat on what 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 are some of the common signs and symptoms absolutely so when we think about burnout what we do is usually reference the definition that comes out of the World Health Organization and they identify three major elements the first one is that we feel a level of physical and or emotional exhaustion The second is that we experience a little bit of cynicism or we feel a bit distant from our work. And the third one is that we experience a decrease in our personal and professional efficacy. So those are the components, but there are some questions that we can ask ourselves Mm -hmm. if we want to assess if that's something that we're experiencing. I think that would be really helpful in terms of, I guess, guiding us through some of the very common concerns and whether this is something that needs to be taken very seriously. So what what are some of the queries that we could invite people to ask themselves, Sarah? We can look at some of the symptoms. So a lot of people that we see that are experiencing burnout will say that they're noticing some cognitive shifts. They're not having the ability to focus the way that they were before. They're forgetting things. They're finding themselves being a lot more indecisive. 
on an emotional level, there's a sense of overwhelm, Mm -hmm. panic, frustration, irritability, which many people don't recognize is usually related to anxiety as opposed to something else. Mm -hmm. And then even from a physiological perspective, we notice that people have chest pain, their heart rate will be accelerating, they might notice that they have aches and pains, tummy troubles. Uh, This can translate, of course, into behavioral shifts, like having difficulty sleeping and withdrawing from people socially. As you said earlier, Dr. Sarah, um, World Health Organization recognizes and actually included burnout in its international classification of diseases back in 2019 and defied it as an occupational phenomenon. And I wondered if there are any particular industries where burnout is more prevalent. Do you think there's any roles and responsibilities or indeed characteristics of a job where someone might be experiencing this more often? There may be, but what I can tell you based on my experience running Thrive for the past five years, and especially since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, is that we are seeing people presenting with burnout across all industries, Mm -hmm. and especially when times are tough, when there is uncertainty in a person's individual life, in their community, in their industry, uh, that can be a breeding ground for burnout because people feel like they need to really go a million miles a minute in order to fight that uncertainty and try to secure their position as much as possible. And, and I think the, the problem is for many people, and, and actually one study back in 2020 confirmed this, it said this, this stigma reflects the belief that most people view burnt out individuals as being less competent than those who are not burnt out. So there's still this fear around actually addressing it, you know, to yourself or to HR, to your to your manager. And I want to raise a really interesting point that Jessica from Little Nomads Coaching has got in touch with me on saying, um, it's so important that we normalise discussing mental health, but I want to add that burnout is not limited to the workplace. Many parents, especially mothers, experience burnout. And one of the major factors is this idea of degree of individualism. You know, this major factor of the pressure of women and parents to be perfect. Um, and there's still this huge stigma around it, especially women who are ashamed to open up and indeed seek help and I think that is so so true and I think about people who are the most burnt out in in my life <laughs> it's, it's a it's a lot of a lot of mums out there dealing with family pressures and a lot of a lot of men dealing with the financial pressures so it seems to be across the board as you say not limited to particular industries but a combination of factors that can really compound to often devastating effect and Dr. Sarah I want to find out next about you know what what can we control? You know, what boundaries can we put in place? How can we recognise this in ourselves and take positive action? We're talking burnout on the show this afternoon and thank you for all of your messages. It seems like we've tapped into something that's increasingly common and I think increasingly serious. Dr. Sarah Rasmus with us this afternoon, licensed psychologist and the MD of Thrive Wellbeing Centre. No name on this message and you can of course get in touch anonymously saying I have all the mentioned symptoms of burnout in my current job. I identified it last year but I can't leave the job because of family obligations and I feel useless. Dr. Sarah, if someone came to you in clinic saying exactly this, what kind of questions would you be asking and what kind of advice would you give to anyone else that's feeling the same as this listener? So this is something that we have heard a lot. And the first thing that we would do is really try to get a baseline understanding of what the burnout is looking like. So asking some of the questions that we already discussed previously, but then also having the person reflect 
on the ways in which they're currently taking care of themselves from a physical perspective, in terms of a psychological, emotional perspective, social, spiritual, and professional. And from there, we can identify where they're doing well, where they're lacking, and pinpoint specific behaviors that they would like to change and then put an action plan in place to be able to do so. Um, Dr. Sarasmia, I read one psychologist claim that burnout is often related to an inability to set good professional and personal boundaries. So simply changing jobs will not solve the problems. What's your take on that? I agree that changing jobs is not necessarily going to solve the issues. And I agree very much that one of the things that we need to do is have more realistic expectations for ourselves and also make sure that we have a healthier work environment. And part of having a healthier work environment is feeling empowered enough to say no to things that are outside of of reason. And as I was referencing previously, when we're feeling insecure, whether it's on a personal level or within our greater context, we sometimes try to feel better by taking everything on. But that ends up depleting us. And we see that when people really experience burnout, it's not only bad for the individual, it's also bad for the organization Mm -hmm. because they're much more likely to take sick days, they're much more likely to be absentees, they're much more likely to show up at the desk and just kind of stare off at the wall uh, and then feel really bad about it the next day and so on and so forth. So we need to figure out when and how to say no and that involves taking inventory of the boundaries that we have intellectually, emotionally, time-based, mm-hmm. physical, and so on and so forth. It can also be really bad for family life. You know, if if, um, if one member of that family is really at breaking point, the impact that can have on everyone in that home can, can be really devastating, you know, on a marriage and, you know, a relationship between um, parents and children. And a great message here saying, how do you recommend you can help or console a partner or friend going through burnout? What insights would you give there, Doctor? Well, you know, I always say one of the most important things that we can do for any issue that we're facing is to be direct and to communicate about it, but in a really loving, in a really gentle, and in a really compassionate way. So if I were to see someone that I care about and love, and it's happened many times in the past, Mm -hmm. look like they're going through a rough patch, I would probably approach them and say, you know what, I can see you've got a lot on your plate. How are you doing? And leave it with an open-ended question, follow up with more, how are you doing? Because usually people's response is, I'm doing fine, or they try to shut it down. Mm -hmm. And I just had a conversation this morning, actually, with a client. Uh, Rather than saying, what can I do to help? Um, which is kind of in some ways adding to the person's place. Yeah, now I have to help you to help me. (laughs) Exactly, offer something. So, okay, well, one of the things that goes first when we're feeling burnt out is we we stop eating healthily or at all. So sneaking a granola bar into that person's laptop bag um, with a little note saying, you know, stay fueled, have a good day. These little gestures um, can be helpful in terms of physical self-care, but most importantly, shows you that you're not alone and feeling connected is critical Mm -hmm. when we're feeling depleted individually. Speaking of connection, great point from Manny here from Mentality Men's Group here in the UAE saying it's important to mention the power of community at times like this, a place to offload some of that burden. And I think sometimes having those kind of me too moments, I know it's it's a fine line between a misery loves company and, and also kind of offloading. But understanding that, I mean, the, the number I quoted earlier, 40% of employees feeling burnt out, does that sound about right to you, do you think? 
I would say it's probably higher. And I think part of it, I don't know if you remember, Helen, but you and I had a chat one time about being busy and wearing that as a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that also kind of contributes to the burnout situation. We've got so many amazing things that are happening in the city. That's why we love it so much. At the same time, with all these opportunities, it becomes difficult to say no. And we just want to be doing everything and showing that we're doing everything. And that's exhausting, even if we're doing things that we like and enjoy. So to come back to my initial question, you know, we talked about Jacinda Arden um, stepping back, saying she's got nothing left in the tank. Do you think this is, you know, going to perhaps, well, it is now, we're talking about burnout on the show right now, but I guess wider conversations in in other workplaces, you know, moving the needle on on workplace mental health, or is this going to be an epidemic that just keeps on rolling on? What needs to change? I really hope that this is something that's going to move the needle and it's incredible that she was able to identify it. And I even wrote down previously what she said, I don't have enough in the tank to do it justice. She is acknowledging that she doesn't have the reserves anymore. And the thing is, is that we are wired to be able to endure strength, uh, stress and difficulty, but only for a finite period of time. And we need to have an opportunity to rest and recover. So ultimately, what we need to make sure we're doing as an individual and even organizations who are going through, you know, intense phases of development or growth or change is that following those stressful bouts, we need to make sure that people have a chance to rest and recover. So she's obviously a very prominent figure. People pay a lot of attention to the things that she has to say. There's a lot of um, important discussions that are hopefully going to come out of this and hopefully some changes that are going to be made as well. Thank you for raising the point about rest and recovery because I feel like, well, I was, I, there's a really great, um, I'm going to sound so woo-woo right now. There's a really great meditation I listen to and it's on Insight Timer. It's completely free and it's this wonderful um, woman called Sarah Blondin. And my favourite one that she does is exa- exactly that. It's about what she talks about kind of honouring the rhythms of nature. You know, we don't expect a flower to bloom all year round. You know, we don't expect a tree to, you know, to, to be in leaf the whole time. You know, sometimes there are these bare branches and we just have faith that, yes, in time, you know, you will have the energy and strength to, you know, be in bloom again. And I think we, we don't allow ourselves that time and that forgiveness, that self-compassion to say, do you know what? I just need to say no and rest. Where I find it difficult is when am I saying no to, and it means being antisocial and just watching Happy Valley with a bowl of pasta. And when am I, when am I resting productively? I think that's a topic for another day. Um, Dr. Sarah, for anyone that wants to reach you and the team at Thrive, what's the best way of getting in touch? The best way is to visit our website, which is www.thrive.ae. And it has all of our socials, our WhatsApp, our phone, our email. Everything is there. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Sarah Rasmi from Thrive Wellbeing Centre. We're talking burnout on the show today and thank you for all of your messages, your questions, your concerns. We were in conversation just then with Dr. Sarah Rasmi, licensed psychologist. And joining us now is Emma Burdett. She's the founder of Wild, that's Women in Leadership Deliver. Um, we all get exhausted, but we're talking female burnout. Of course, Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, shocked everyone recently by announcing she was resigning. The reason was simple. She said she was simply too worn out to continue. So Emma is an expert on gender equality, a transformational coach as well. Well, and she's also experienced burnout firsthand. What was your take on Jacinda Arden's uh, resignation? Do you think she did the right thing? 
Yeah, absolutely. And thanks. It's great to see you again. But um, I think that um, when we are exhausted and burnt out, we can't give... Uh, to the best of our ability. And I think it's true leadership, which is demonstrative of setting a precedence mm-hmm. of, um, you know, enough is enough and it's time to move on and being very authentic I liked with integrity. Op- I liked how open she was about it because I think it gives permission for other people to say, do you know what? I feel the same. And, you know, there's a... It, well, there's nothing worse than hating your job, for one thing. There's nothing worse than feeling like you're not doing a good job in a job you love, when you feel like you're not able to deliver. And that can be a paid-for job, that can be, you know, parenthood, you know, come, lots of things coming under under that umbrella. Can I hear about your own burnout? Because I've, I've, I have to say, we've had so many messages today. A lot of people have either had a tough time or are currently going through it. What was your experience, Emma? Yeah, absolutely. So I've experienced burnout firsthand and it is actually a really, really scary space. So um, at the start of last year, I executed four world-class events in four months, was running to different meetings. I was so excited to be quite a new entrepreneur and I was emotionally, physically um, completely exhausted and working all hours God sends and I actually fell off a stage during a keynote in tears so quite serious um, a male mentor of mine was at the event kind of swooped me up sat me down and said are you all right <laughs> of which I was like yeah of course you know I'm fine and you know it was the apathy I think and the detachment and actually depression which um, lasted not only weeks it lasted months And, you know, I took myself off to Sri Lanka and I stumbled across an article. And it's amazing how the universe gives you the right thing at the right time. And it was about burnout. And it said um, that burnout is categorised by detachment, decreased sense of accomplishment Mm. and emotional exhaustion. And And that was you were like, tick, tick, tick. Oh, that's exactly what I've got. So So, so then what? I think this is where so many people struggle. It's like, I've identified I'm burnt out, but I've got these pressures on my shoulders. You know, we just heard from a listener there saying, you know, I'm burnt out out of my job, but I need to make that money for my family. And I think that's a very real situation for an awful lot of people. Yeah, we'd love to be like, okay, we're going to, you know, go on a retreat or change, you know, change jobs or you know, cut back on some roles and responsibilities. But, you know, real life gets in the way. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think anything is worth our mental health and well-being. And I always, when I coach women, it's about taking time for us, even if it's half an hour a day. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge advocate for implementing habits and rituals. And I think that we just have outdated systems, social conditioning, we jump up, swig a coffee, run out the door, work, and then it's Groundhog Day. And how we set ourselves up for success is actually carving out, you know, even 30 minutes a day to have meditation, gratitude journal, uh, you know, listening to an inspiring podcast. Because as the saying goes, you can't pour for an empty cup. And a lot of women I coach, you know, they are on the edge and close to burnout and it's not worth it. It's very serious. Do you feel like men and women experience burnout differently, Emma? Yeah, I think that men have a um, sort of thing where they just keep going and they push and they strive. And that's also, um, you know, a thing with 
I think, autocratic masculine style leadership. Uh, I do think um, it can affect uh, women slightly more. But then, you know, we are hearing more and more of men having mental health it's, issues. Well, it's really hard to judge, isn't it? Because there's still a lot of stigma around it. You know, as I said earlier, one study showing that there's, there's still stigma around the perception of burnout, that someone who admits they're burnt out is seen as less competent, which is nonsense. But I, un- I understand the, you know, the mentality behind that. So it's hard, it's hard to get a real read on the numbers you know, of, of genders on it because, as we say, not many people are willing to put their hand up and say, I'm struggling, I need help, this, this situation's not working for me. And what can workplaces do to, to make sure that they're safe, empathetic, that they're putting the employee first? And I don't just mean to be, oh, you know, we're all going to knit our own yoghurt and sit in circles and, you know, plot <laughs> each other's hair because ultimately workplaces that look after their employees are going to have a healthier bottom line as well. I think we need to understand that the notion of hustle hard is completely outdated and dead. You know, working 24-7, people working at midnight and copying everyone in to show that they're busy. There needs to be a complete culture shift. Um, That would come from the top down. We need to um, embrace flexible working. Um, I think that's a big thing with gender equality as well as supporting, you know, working mothers, um, embracing, um, you know, uh, sorry, encouraging um, wellness, encouraging having um, initiatives to um, embrace wellness. And also, I think that having the right support system is vital. As you know, I lead a women's network. We are about community and having that right support. But I think particularly in this region, a lot of companies have a long way to go when it comes to the uh, structures. Good, good point here from, from Ibrahim saying, I find some people push themselves to burn up by doing things not expected of them, such as being on the clock 24-7, which then becomes the expectation that they can't escape. And this comes back to exactly what um, psychologist Dr. Sarah Rasmussen was saying about boundaries. And, you know, you might change jobs, but you might not necessarily change the 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 boundaries that you put in place or the things that you communicate to people around you and I think we're gonna I want to do a show on people pleasing because I think this is a big source of burnout I really really do of wanting to be liked and you know or equally not wanting to be disliked what's your take there yeah absolutely I mean people pleasing is something which is very um you know uh, sort of ingrained particularly with women and it all starts with the you know girls should be seen and not heard if you speak up you're bossy and aggressive be pleasant Men are the leaders and um yeah it's um boundary setting is vital i i coach women and they often put their head down and work as hard as possible and think they're going to get tapped on the shoulder and someone will say, you're promoted. Here's and it doesn't money. work like that. Um, yeah. You know, you actually need to implement healthy boundaries and that actually earns more credibility and respect in the end. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, no to people pleasing. <laughs> um, question from Belinda saying, um, tell me more about the collective. Oh, you've preempted my question, Belinda. <laughs> so, Wild, as you said, you're, you've opened up membership now. I mean, what's, what's that all about? Yeah, so we're very much focused on the corporate woman. Having been in the corporate sector uh, myself and now the entrepreneurial journey, we actually take a 360 holistic approach. So having leadership skills is is great, you know, presenting with impact, negotiating, 
all of those um, things are are important. But what is the bedrock of success is um, you know, success is an inside job, and our other two components, which make up the collective, are very much based on wellness and self leadership. And combined, we are aiming to um, get women to learn mastery when it comes to balanced success. Mm -hmm. So it's something that we've been working very hard on behind the scenes. We're also the only women's network to connect women across border. We're launching it in, in Riyadh at the end of Feb. And Do then not Qatar. get burnt out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I actually carve um, time in my diary now for joy. And it's something that I get my clients to do. So I start by saying, what's your joy? Write a list on Sunday what your joy factor is and plotting it in your diary. There's a new book actually out that's on my on my list. It's called Micro Joys, which I think oh, because I I've mean heard of that. Awesome. It's, it's brand new, brand brand new. It's by Cindy Spiegel. Just googled right. it. It's the practice of uncovering joy and finding hope at any minute. And I love this because it is these little things that add up to the sense of well-being and happiness. And I'm not just talking about, you know, skipping through a field, but that sense of, you know, I'm feeling pretty good in my life and I've got things to look forward to. And that might, as I said, be an episode of Happy Valley tonight, or it might be, you know, seeing a friend or it might be a meeting I'm excited about. But taking that time to recognise this is actually pretty good. Yeah, and I think we should make feeling good our number one priority. That's something that I'm, you know, a big advocate for, particularly with my clients. Make feeling good your number one priority and taking time to have that joy and fun because ultimately that's you know the best state to actually attract our desires so um we're messaging who is the speaker on with helen right now it's emperor um, speaking <laughs> to us from wild um i want to just quickly come back we've only got a minute but i want to ask you about if it's not hustle hard what should we be aspiring to for the year ahead i've actually got a new mantra and it's something that i'm embodying more and more which is do less attract more sounds good <laughs> And I think, <laughs> well, I think that we can, um, without getting too metaphysical, we can tap into our subconscious uh, mind. We can work on raising our vibration, which gives us more clarity and more focus so that we don't have to hustle hard into points of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. We can actually do less and attract things that come to us. So it's something that I embody. It's something I get my clients to and it works <laughs> for anyone that wants to find out more about women women in leadership deliver your network emma what's the best way of getting in touch yeah so my website is www.wildwomenlead.com and you can always find me on linkedin where i'm very active good for uh, you yeah. i hate linkedin so uh, kudos to you if you can <laughs> teach me so how to much. use it one day that'd be fantastic if you do want emma's details drop me a little message saying wild and i will connect you on the sms emma thank you so so Thanks, much Helen. take Great care of you. yourself love it to hear you're so busy so productive but I don't need you back in in six months talking no, burnout no on burnout. personal experience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Send the word wild if you want those details. Now, we all know how important a good night's sleep is, but a huge number of people are actually struggling to achieve it. Now, for many, snoring might seem normal, but it can also potentially be a sign of a serious medical condition called sleep apnea. Apnea means no breath, and it's this temporary but repeated stopping and starting of breathing that's linked to a whole range of health problems, including some severe as heart attacks and strokes. Now, Leila bin Harib runs Alive Medical, and they specialise in the testing and treatment 
treatment of sleep apnea. Um, she's also an internationally certified hormonal health practitioner and qualified executive member of the International Practitioners of Holistic Medicine. And we are talking sleep apnea this afternoon. We're going to be having um, another expert joining us um, from the world of ENT after half past two today. So if you've got any questions, concerns, you want to have a bit of a moan about your snoring or your partners get in touch. Leila, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I know this is a topic very close to your heart. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about why you're so passionate about bringing awareness to sleep, sleep apnea in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had a long career with the government. At the end of my career, after 28 years, I started looking at sleep apnea from an aviation regulator point of view. So uh, we were looking at uh, sleep apnea effect on fatigue management with the cabin crew, with the pilots, etc. But during that period of time, uh, my mother was not diagnosed uh, by sleep apnea, but she had a lot of medical issues. So she started to have uh, diabetic. She she started being diabetic, diabetes, and uh, she started having hypertension, and then that led to a lot of uh, cardiac issues. And we lost her, and she was young when we lost her. The thing is that we didn't know that she had a sleep a sleep apnea issue. She was snoring. She was gasping for air at night. But we took her to cardiologists, to other doctors, but nobody uh, of her physicians, uh, they noted this issue or even asked to have her sleep uh, apnea diagnosed or at least do a test or, you know, a questionnaire or whatever. So we lost uh, my mother very young. And then, and then during aviation, I uh, talked to sleep apnea uh, doctors, sleep medicine doctors, and uh, through my investigation, I realized that my mother had a serious uh, obstructive sleep apnea because we saw her symptoms at night. We used to sleep next to her when she was sick, and we could see that she mm. was every few minutes she would gasp for air. And we didn't know what is that. We thought it's, you know, related to her uh, heart issues. Uh, but then when I investigated, I started doing a lot of research. I realized that if we really diagnosed mm -hmm. the sleep apnea with my mother, we didn't uh, lose her and she will be uh, with us uh, with us today. Leila, I'm so sorry to hear about your mum. And I wondered if you had, or the doctors had been able to connect those dots and give a diagnosis of sleep apnea. What steps would have been able to be taken? Because sadly, it's too late for her, but yes. there are so many people that could really benefit from an accurate diagnosis. Yes. What, what, would, what would have changed? What could have been done differently, do you think? Well, there's a lot of things. I think there are four main issues, four main pillars to change in the uh, medical system. First, the primary uh, care physician, they need to be aware. They need to have a protocol in order to identify the signs of sleep apnea and be able to send these patients for uh, sleep apnea diagnostic. Mm -hmm. And then we need to make sleep apnea di diagnostic more affordable because it's extremely expensive right now. And we need to use uh, artificial intelligence. We need, we need to use innovation in order to improve the way we do diagnostic of sleep apnea. It has to be accessible to public. It has to be there from the public medical mm -hmm. system or private medical system. What does diagnostic treatment or even getting a diagnosis look like now? What, what, what are physicians looking for? What are experts such as yourself trying to establish in order to be able to get that diagnosis and then move forward? How does it work? Well, we uh, currently, uh, they have sleep labs. 
we do have sleep labs. So a patient would uh, have some time off and they would be admitted to a hospital and they will take a traditional uh, sleep test. Uh, sleep test uh, uh, sleep test with all the cables, with all the wires, and it is not in their, you know, normal, well, normal this, this location. This I struggle and, with sleep tests like this. Because I'm yes. thinking, how are you possibly going to get an accurate depiction of what, a, you know, a typical night's sleep looks like when you are exactly in, in an unfamiliar surrounding and you're yes. covered in cables? So. Yes, and if you, if you consider children as well. Exactly. And that is not accurate at all. So... Uh, this is exactly uh, my mission. When I left the government, I uh, retired. I started do, to do a lot of research. I researched all the technology available around the world. I researched the regulation about sleep apnea. I looked at the holes, at the gaps in the medical system. And especially if when someone coming from, uh, you know, from another regulatory sector, which is aviation, mm-hmm. and goes into medical regulation, it's always when you have someone outside the system can really have, you know, an analytical eye yeah, to look at eyes. the holes and look at the gaps. And so I've, I've seen a lot of things that has to be improved. There's a lot of improvement areas in our system, especially when it comes to uh, technology and innovation and diagnostic. So I also researched and had uh, a partnership with uh, a company who is using artificial intelligence in order to diagnose sleep apnea. So they are looking at the mandibular movements uh, and their, uh, you know, and their algorithm and their home sleep test. And uh, that is something uh, was amazing, especially for children, because the number of cables and the number of, uh, you know, uh, n- number of uh, things attached to the to a child, it was it was very minimal, only two cables on their jaw and then on their forehead. And the machine is very small, a tiny, tiny machine that the, the child does not even notice while he's sleeping. And they sleep in their own crib, in their mm-hmm. own bed. So they don't feel that you know that it's not for, yeah, it's, it's not foreign yeah. it's not foreign for them it's not uncomfortable for them so you really be uh, you are really uh, able to measure the right uh, sleep cycle we are having a special look at sleep apnea this hour Joining us now from Alive Medical is Leila bin Harab. I want I want to know just how common sleep apnea is, Leila. When we think about how many people are affected knowingly or unknowingly, do we have any yeah. data on it? Um, the last data we got from the American Sleep uh, Association, which is uh, basically 23% of the population, they have sleep apnea. Wow. And actually... 20% of those people are diagnosed. So 80% of sleep apnea around the world is undiagnosed. Wow. Which has huge impact. It's got a huge impact on their individual lives. I'm sure their, their, fam- yes. their family lives. Um, yes, and absolutely. the healthcare yeah. system as well. Let's hear now from Bert, who suffered from sleep apnea and was eventually diagnosed. The way I knew I had a sleep disorder was uh, the amount of snoring that I was doing during the night as well as waking up countless times during the night. No matter how much sleep I felt like I did get, I was tired every day. Whether I went to bed early or late, no matter how long I felt I had slept into the day, uh, I constantly felt tired. I was officially diagnosed with sleep apnea. I was actually stopped breathing up to 100 times a night and as long as 35 seconds at a time. It was very important for me to go to the sleep center and get this taken care of simply because I was tired of being tired all the time. 
Versus well, Bert saying no matter how <clears throat> early he went to bed, yes. no, matter, no matter how much sleep he got, he wasn't getting the quality of sleep in order to feel rested. Mm-hmm. So let's talk techniques and remedies. What have you seen to be successful in this area, Leila? Well, uh, we provide only one kind of treatment right now, which is the oral appliance. The oral appliance is an uninvasive treatment for sleep apnea, and I think it covers 80% of those cases where uh, it is mild and moderate, and sometimes it works for severe sleep apnea. This is much better choice from surgery, for example, and uh, better choice actually from CPAP, where there's a lot of cases where you need CPAP if it is severe or very obese. For anyone who's not familiar with CPAP, can you explain what it is? Well, it's a machine that it will, uh, you know, push the oxygen. So it will increase the oxygen level. And you wear it on your face? You wear a mask uh, next to a machine, next to your bed. And it has a sound and, you know, you carry it all uh, everywhere. It's a bit Darth vader (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's not, um, you know, it's not the favorite treatment, especially for married people, because it really affects their marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, who wants to sleep next to someone? (laughs) No, No. not at all. So an appliance would be more suitable. And what what does that look like? Can you explain how how it's it's used, what it looks like? Yes, an appliance is... uh, uh, Similar to a night guard, but for uh, for up and uh, down uh, teeth, and they have uh, it has a connector. So the connector between the two night guards, mm-hmm. for example, like a hinge, like a like a hinge, which ensure the airway is uh, is I mean, or you have an airway open during the night. So it will affect your jaw placement during the night, and you will have an open airway. And actually, it will exercise your tongue and your upper upper airway muscles. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Is this something you have to use for life or eventually is your is your body going to respond to that appliance and be able to do that on its own? Absolutely. There's a lot of cases uh, we have saw that they have stopped using oral appliances after years. But it depends, ag- again, on your lifestyle. So if you are obese, if you, you know... Why, if, why does weight play such an important role on sleep apnea? Well, it's a vicious circle, actually, between weight and obesity and sleep apnea. So if you have sleep apnea and you have lack of oxygen and you have high carbon dioxide and then you have a metabolic issue in your body and then you will have issue with weight loss and you will put the pounds, uh, you know, mm-hmm. on your body. And then... Uh, if you don't have a sleep apnea and you have a lot of fat in your airways, that will cause sleep apnea as well. Okay. So it will reduce the airway uh, size in your uh, in your mouth. Now let's go back to the jaw. You yes. were off air recommending me a, a, a bit of reading for me, but yes. I've heard you that you you can also look at somebody, even a child. Yes. And perhaps. Have a have an idea they might have issues with sleep or sleep apnea. Yes. Well, physicians. What are you, what are you looking for? Um, physicians they look at the face. And they look at the jaw. Now, the jaw, uh, the jaw is very important to, you know, have a have the right bite mm-hmm. in order to have the right airway. So it's airway functional. Size. So it's functional. So if you see a, um, you know, lower jaw which is going retruded to the back, to the back, you will find most probably they have a sleep apnea because that affects the airway. Now, I just had my airways assessed a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago with the whole family because a good friend is an airways dentist and she actually said to me about my five-year-old you might want to 
get her checked. And yes. she's a she is a thumb sucker. And sure enough, we all went in and actually both of the girls do need some kind of appliance in order to expand their jaws yes. as well. And I found out after 40 years on this planet that I have got a severe tongue tie. <laughs> so I think I might need to have that <laughs> dealt with. So I'm wondering if you could look at me now, would you, would you suspect there's any issue at all or not? Uh, no, actually, no. Okay. Not, not, not from where I'm sitting, but I'm not a physician again. No, no, well, we are going to be talking to an ENT. Yes. Yes. Um, Leila, I just wanted to play out one of your patients. This is Claude, who has been working with you. I snored a lot. My father was suffering from sleep apnea. To avoid reaching his stage, I looked for solution. And that's how I used the dental orthosis, which changed my life. Because my wife sleeps all night in our bed, the quality of my nights is better, and I am in better shape. Better shape, relationships in yes. better shape. Um, Leila, if anyone wants to reach you and indeed find out more about being tested, um, which I think is, is a real point of difference for everything you're doing with the with Alive, what's the best way of getting in touch? Um, we have our website, alab-met.com, and we deal with a lot of hospitals and clinics. So if they con- contact us and we will uh, refer them to a specialised uh, specialized physician who's using our diagnostic and treatment. Leila, thank you so much for your time. It's You're been a welcome. pleasure. We'd love to have you back. We have had a lot of questions that we are putting to our ENT next. But if you do want Leila's details, just drop me a little message. Say sleep on 4001 and I will send you that. We're talking sleep on the show today, specifically not getting enough of it or not quality sleep. Sleep apnea is the hot topic and many of you getting in touch with questions and concerns. So we're bringing in the ENT. Dr. Issam um, Alekchaka is with us. He's a consultant ENT surgeon at Alzara Hospital. We've stolen him away from theatre to answer my questions and yours about sleep apnea. Dr. Issam, thank you so, so much. Um, I wanted to ask you, medically speaking, what is exactly happening within the nose, the throat, for it to be called sleep apnea compared to someone who just snores a bit at night? Yeah, good afternoon. Sleep Hi. apnea actually is something happened that your breathing is stopped for more than like 10 seconds uh, when you are in a normal sleeping. The difference between the sleep apnea and the snoring, snoring is only a sound produced by the soft tissue in the throat and the palate. But sleep apnea, it means that you, can, you are not able to breathe, you are not able to inhale the air through your uh, chest because there is obstructive in the in the airway or there is another kind of reason which is rare happening which is central it means that the brain uh, doesn't give you the order to breathe and that's something else but our concern is what we call obstructive sleep apnea it means that you're trying when you are sleeping to breathe but the air doesn't reach to your your lungs because there is a plucking in the uh, upper airways that's what briefly the sleep apnea we heard or obstructive apnea. We've heard earlier from Leila just how dangerous this can be, and she sadly lost her own mother when that sleep apnea wasn't diagnosed. Um, I wanted to ask you about risk factors, about demographics of people that need to be particularly clued in to their sleep and their sleep patterns. Is there a group of people that this affects more than others? Yeah, actually, in general, males are more effective than females, around like uh, three to one percentage. It's not like a democratic, demographic, but it's uh, more probably it's like ethnics. They found that in some uh, research and uh, statistics that, for example, the African-American is a higher spondi- uh, percentage for getting this obstructive sleep apnea than the uh, Caucasian. 
And there is always like uh, the age has a, a, a big role. For example, over 50 years old, especially for men, and uh, over the menopause age for, for the women, they can get uh, the chance to get this obstructive sleep apnea. Actually, the percentage globally for this disease it's getting higher and higher, maybe because the obesity getting higher and higher, and you will see now the obesity is one of the uh, main factors of this. Or the doctors start start to search more about the disease. Mm-hmm. So now recently, the uh, last like statistics for the percentage of getting this disease from the population is more than like 33% of the uh, men. That's and huge. that's like, as, as, yeah, it's a very huge number. A lot of and tired as, people are there. Yeah, and as I told you, maybe because the people get aware, maybe the doctors get aware, we learn a lot about this disease, and the higher percentage of obesity uh, these days, as you know, it's getting higher and higher these, these days that the number of patients who are overweight or obese. Dr. Sam, we've had a lot of messages on this. Now, some people sharing their yeah. experiences and questions as well. Sammy's saying, I was overweight for many years and suffered with sleep apnea. I had to wear the machine over my face, the CPAP. However, last year I had a gastric bypass. I've lost a lot of weight. I'm eating better, exercising, and I no longer need to wear my machine at night. Good to hear a positive story. Um, and Sarah asking, does that CPAP machine always improve sleep apnea? Are you able to explain how that machine works and who is a suitable candidate for it? Yeah, actually, this machine, which called the, uh, I will not mention that the CPAP, I mentioned the PAP, P A P, because CPAP is one kind of this machine, which means continuous pressure airway. Uh, but we have another kind with the same uh, uh, like function. The target of this machine is that when you are breathing during the night and your muscles is too much relaxed and the plucking happens, we will give you during the inhalation phase some pressurized air that can open this collapse. I always make an example for the, the patient, like you have like a, a very soft straw and you need to like suck a thick liquid from this, this straw, it collapses mm-hmm. as like there is like a physical law, Perloni law, that the, the, the walls of this uh, pipe will, will collapse if it's too much soft. So we give additional power to, to make these walls of the airway a little bit like uh, uh, harder that prevents from collapsing or prolapsing. That's what the machine did. But actually, when we want to use the machine, there will be like a full study of the patient. Because in general, only 50% of the people of the population who are suffering from the obstructive sleep apnea, they may be compatible with the machine. Mm-hmm. Another 50%, they don't tolerate. There is another factor that we can, we can uh, treat. I would just want to highlight something. It's like obstructive sleep apnea is not only one factor. It's like more than 10 or 12 factors. Uh, not all of them maybe exist in, in one patient, but we need to focus and to highlight which factors this case is suffering from that we can control. Obesity is one of them, as I told you, the age, the shortness of the neck, the width of the neck, the shape of the throat, the, the size of the tongue, the nose uh, function, uh, and even there is like, as I told you, there's some like family or genetic factors may uh, affect this issue. So we need to study case by case and to find the suitable management plan for each patient separately from the other. It's not like a standard solution for all the people that use the CPAP and you'll be fine. It's mm-hmm. not like that. No, I think that's really good to hear because I think a lot of people have thought of it as being this magic bullet really yeah. and, and, yeah. and I wonder you know, people that do use it is the body going to respond in a way that it's going to 
cure itself? You know, is, is this a long term strategy? What, what other techniques do you feel like can be really effective? We've had Jim asking about mouth taping. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, for example, if we have like this patient who has uh, a lot of factors we cannot control, like he is too much overweight and there is no way to lose the weight. He has, as I told you, like a very short neck and surgeries cannot make any any changing for his and he has very high number of this sleep test, what we call the AHI, which is very like uh, 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 important number for us to treat the patient. The CPAP will be the only way and... Uh, of course, when you use the CPAP, we need to continue observing the patient, how much he's responding, because even the machine itself may get us like a record or report for this uh, one or two months of sleeping with or without, and then we will find out if he's responding. Mm-hmm. And this, this machine is part of the management. As I told you, it's like a long trip, starting with a sleep test and starting with education for the patient and checking out what's the reason of his sleep apnea. And then we can figure out the way how we control it. One of them is the CPAP. There is other ways like surgeries, like a, a sleeping position, like losing weight. There is a lot of factors that we need to uh, modify to control the quality of sleeping for this patient, which is very important to prevent him from complication, which is serious complication, mainly the cardiovascular mm-hmm. system complication, which may happen because of sleep apnea. Can I ask you about sleeping position? I think that's a, a really interesting point because there's all been all sorts of weird and wonderful inventions over the years. You know, people sewing yeah. golf balls into their pajamas to stop them lying on their backs yeah. and things like that. What can yeah. actually be effective with, with stopping snoring? And I'm not talking about serious sleep apnea here, mm. but perhaps just having a silent My. night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I am thinking. Some patient, uh, some patient visiting to me, they, for example, have like a plucking nose on the right side. So without they are they are explaining themselves always as their name. You are you are always supposed to sleep on your right right side. If you sleep on the left side on your back side, you'll feel too much bad, and you will start snoring or even get some like uh, this breathing difficulty. He said yes, doctor. Why? How you know that? Because we have like a positional effect for the nose. For example, for taking the, the nose. If your nose uh, right side of the nose blocking by the deviated septum or whatever or, or anything blocking the nose, mm-hmm. when you sleep on the right side, already it will be blocked by your position. Mm-hmm. So the left side will be free and you can you can sleep all your night better. If you sleep on the left side and because of the physiological effect for the position, your left side will be blocked and your nose right side already blocked because of the bone or the cartilage, whatever. So you're not you cannot you are not able to breathe from the nose. And if you sleep on your backward, both sides will be a little bit stuffy, so you'll suffer. So always we, t- we teach the patient, you can put like, like a, a tennis ball behind your back or a pillow, small pillow, and sleep on, the, on that side, that when you are in deep sleeping, it prevents you to change your position, and that will help you for, to, to, to get rid of this mild sleep apnea or mild snoring. This is great information because my husband has no no air going in on his right hand nostril. In fact, I'm going to send him to an ENT very very soon. Yeah. He's wearing those yeah. awful, really ugly nose turbines. I go to bed wearing my Invisalign. He goes to bed wearing his nose turbine. And I was like, well, this is this is marriage. This is where we are in our forties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we can fix this. That's what we tell the patient if he he refused to do like a surgery for his nose because nose always can be fixed. Blocking well, nose always can be fixed. Expect yeah. a phone call from Mr. Farmer. Dr. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Really good to get an overview and you can be found there, consultant ENT at Alzara Hospital. Take care of yourself and your patients as ever. Um, and we will be, of course, revisiting this topic, judging by the number of messages we got. A hot one, indeed.
It is one of the busiest hours on your radio. Ludmilla Yamalava from HPL Yamalava and Pluka is joining us between now and five to answer my questions, but most importantly, yours. It's your live legal clinic. An amazing opportunity to get some advice, get some reassurances, have a bit of an action plan in place if you need it. We are having a special look based in honesty on the number of messages I've had around employee rights and the law. Ludmilla Yamalava, lovely to have you with us. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Good, 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 good. Um, We've got some questions, we've got some headlines, I've got a whole lot of text messages. Um, Now, this actually... Is um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go in hot. I'm going to go in hot with a message because it actually relates to one of the talking points that you wanted to address that you feel like the UA need to know about. Um, and this is anonymous message saying, "I have a young friend who's just started working in Dubai as a trainee. is on six month probation. They've told her that she doesn't get medical insurance whilst on probation. I believe this is illegal. So I wondered if you could outline for us: Is it mandatory for all employees, all residents, to have Dubai health insurance?" So um, it depends on where you are in the UAE. So one is there's no federal law in the UAE requiring health insurance for all residents across the UAE. So there's no federal law. However, there are a few Emirates that have this, uh, they have their own law requiring health insurance. And those Emirates are Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Abu Dhabi has had this law for longer than Dubai, but Dubai introduced its first law in 2013. So already uh, 10 years, uh, so it's not so new anymore. But in Dubai, yes, there's a specific law that requires for all residents in Dubai to have health insurance. Now, it's 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 related to residency and not employment status. Uh, but in the case of em- employees, because uh, to work here legally, uh, they would, in most cases, uh, would have to be sponsored by their employers or by their companies. And thereby, in order for them to be sponsored, their their companies would have to provide them with health insurance by law. And I will tell you, if they're working here legally, in most cases, in order to apply for an entry permit for an employee, the company would have to submit a proof of health insurance. So it's almost the, the immigration and employment here that are tied in. So in order for the company to apply for an employee to work in the UAE for mm-hmm. the entry permit, they would first have to submit a proof of health insurance. Okay. And now that's one. Two, in most cases, as far as Dubai is concerned, so in other words, you cannot really, you cannot really uh, not, inf- not, not apply this law because the system in Dubai is built in such a way that there's kind of an automatic enforcement of the health insurance. However, I do often hear from a lot of employees saying that they don't get insurance, that their company did not apply for them for the health insurance. And I think it's a little bit of an incorrect statement. I think what companies do is that they get their employees the most basic mm-hmm. uh, health insurance policy, uh, and they don't even notify them. And there are a lot of options like this. It's just sort of like a, a simple form that the employers need to fill out as part of the residence permit. And so they don't even share that copy of that insurance with employees and employees don't even know about this insurance because it's so basic. But there is, in fact, a health insurance in place, which will cover all those employees uh, in emergency situations. However, this only applies to those employees who are working here illegally, which means they actually have an entry permit and have an employment visa. For those who are working here on so-called probation visa without or probation without an actual visa, that's you know, that's a different problem because that's against the law. Okay, Ludmilla, thank you for that. Really good clarification. If anyone wants any more follow-up on that, get in touch. Let's talk contracts. Lots of questions coming in for you, Ludmilla, this hour. Message here saying, I'd like to know, with the changes in employee contracts, so that unlimited contracts are no longer possible, 
When's changing from unlimited to limited, will that change your gratuity? Big question for a lot of people, Ludmilla. What do you say to that? Yeah, so there's there's several parts to that question. One is the timing. Uh, I guess two is the um, uh, the requirement of, of amending the contract. And three is the end of service. So let's just start, start the with the first one. So in terms of the timing, the deadline to convert all the unlimited contracts into limited contracts was uh, set to be February 1 of 2023, which is basically in two days. However, last week, end of last week, uh, the, um, there's a, the government has amended the deadline or extended the deadline to, Jan- uh, to December 31 of 2023, so by 11 months. So as of um, last week, now we have more companies have more time to breathe and until December, end of December of this year, they're not required to amend the um, uh, the unlimited contracts into limited. Mm-hmm. So now we have until end of the year. Um, that's one. Two, in terms of what this means to amend the contract. So uh, because as per the new law, all employment contracts will now be a fixed term or limited term. So when the the question of amendment comes up, it's just for those employees who have been on so-called unlimited contracts, uh, their employment agreements, either upon renewal or by the end of this year, will have to be amended. And that's that part of the the agreement that has to be amended, and that's the term. Otherwise, in substantive terms, all the other uh, terms and conditions of their employment are already subject to the new employment law because that law came into effect last year, last February. So in substantive terms, we're all subject to the UE employment, the the new employment law in terms of the end of service and uh, maternity benefits and all the other benefits. However, just the term of the contract, that's the one uh, one perhaps term that needed to be amended for all those who are on unlimited contracts. Uh, Now, with regards to the end of service, and I've said this before, and I want to clarify this because this is really important. People, a lot of people who have been on unlimited contracts worry that by switching to a limited or fixed term contract, somehow they are being shortchanged or they're they're losing out on some of the benefits or some of the flexibility. That is not correct. In substantive terms, even though this employment, the new employment contract is called a fixed term, uh, the benefits are more akin or more similar to an unlimited term contract. In other words, even if you have a three-year contract, employment contract, and then you terminate your, or you resign two years into it, mm-hmm. or you're terminated a year into it, there is no penalty for, so so to speak, for terminating the contract earlier. So in terms of your end of service, you will not lose out any of your end of service. Uh, in terms of your um, uh, other benefits or, or, or penalties, there are no penalties for terminating this so-called fixed contract earlier. So I guess I, I, what I'd like to do is, is just put people's mind <laughs> to, to, to at rest that they should not worry that just by having their contract be now called a fixed term contract that somehow they're losing out or giving up some of the benefits because that's not the case. Thank you, Ludmilla. Really do appreciate that. Joining us live, Ludmilla Malava. We have stolen away from her practice at Malava and Pluka to answer my questions, but most importantly yours, on all sorts of employment law questions. And we're going to try and get through as many as humanly possible. We might need to slow her down if you're listening on the podcast. Um, we are going to be tackling some of the hot topics and taking your questions on 4001. T has been in touch saying, Hi both. I want to resign from my job. My contract says if I leave within a year of starting, my company will charge me 10,000 dirhams to recoup recruitment costs. Can they do this? 
How short do you want the answer to be? <laughs> no, they cannot. Good. That's against the law. That so the, the employment law is very clear that uh, companies have no right uh, to uh, deduct any amounts of money or to expect uh, the, the employees to pay for any recruitment costs or visa costs or any other costs. So it's, it, it's illegal even if there's a contract in place. Um, parties cannot uh, write uh, write around the law or override the law by contract. So therefore, that contract would not be enforceable. So here's my question then. I guess if T is being told this, does he or she go back and say this is against the law? Is it, is it, that, is it that simple? I think what they do is they just resign as per the UAE law. And then just uh, and then they, when the company tries to offset the 10,000 dirhams, they just object to it then and then ultimately report this to the Ministry of or if they are part of the mainland company or to the particular free zone where they're based and object uh, to that deduction on the basis that it's against the law. Okay, sounds good. Um, and Nicola's been in touch saying, does your bank still freeze your account when you leave a job? And is there any way to avoid this? No, it doesn't. It doesn't do it automatically. Sometimes if there are a lot of different loans and, and credit card loans and mortgages and so on and so forth, sometimes banks may... Uh, uh, when they see an end of service payment comes coming into the account, they may either seize that amount and pay towards towards the, the uh, other obligations or credits. Uh, but it's not long; it's no longer done, or very rarely done, is it automatically. And and in general, even when you uh, lose your job, the banks no longer uh, close your account or freeze your account just by virtue of you finishing your employment. It's only if there are a number of obligations and the bank is worried that somehow they might not get paid. Okay. Now, Patrick's asking about the new unemployment insurance. And Patrick, we have had a deep dive into this a few weeks ago. But for anyone that perhaps missed that show, get the podcast. But for a quick recap now, Ludmilla, where are we standing when it comes to applying for this? Because the, the onus really is on the employee to sign up for this scheme. Correct. So the onus is on the employee and it is mandatory for all employees who uh, sign up or subscribe to the insurance. Uh, the uh, subscription period has started. However, we have until end of June to subscribe. And after that, the penalty of the 400 dirham will apply. Uh, now, for the time being, the it's only for the mainland employees um, that is possible to subscribe. The free zone employees, for, again, uh, at present, cannot subscribe into the unemployment insurance and uh, until further notice. So the law itself does not differentiate between mainland employees and free zone employees. But in practical terms right now, uh, the, the option to subscribe for, main, uh, for free zone employees is not yet activated. Okay, thanks for that. Right, non-compete clauses. Are they enforceable? A listener is asking. Can a former employee be prosecuted or penalised commercially for working with previous clients who wanted or continue to work with that employee specifically? We see here an awful lot about non-compete clauses, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, how enforceable are they? What's the current lay of the land legally, Ludmilla? It's a lot of L's. So in legal terms, they can't. They are enforceable if they are reasonable in scope, geography, and time. Uh, so, but if they're not enforced, if they're not reasonable, then they are unenforceable. So, for example, if you prevent somebody from working within the UAE in a particular space, that that's the, all they know to do then that would be unenforceable. Although the UAE is a small country, still it's a, it's a whole country. So you cannot prevent somebody from working mm-hmm. and exercising their trade in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would not be a, a narrow or a reasonably drafted agreement and therefore unenforceable. Uh, and I will tell you, in my practice here, and it's been quite a lengthy, lengthy practice, um, I have yet to see a single non-competition agreement that has been narrowly or sufficiently narrowly tailored to be enforceable. Okay. 
Uh, that's one. Two, even if you had uh, a narrowly drafted non-competition agreement, the only thing you can enforce at present or what you can do is that you can seek compensation. So the company can seek compensation for the damages it suffered as a direct result of the employee breaching the non-competition agreement. So there isn't, so they, they, the onus is on the company to prove that they in fact suffered specific damages that were related to this particular employee taking away the business. So just claiming that, well, well, that employee went to compete for another, for another industry, another company, that in itself will not help them in court. So they need to substantiate their damages. Makes sense. And somewhat relating to this, a message here saying, a staff member has created a competing business to ours and he's used some of our resources to create the business, including working hours, phone and know-how. What can I do with that? He has resigned now right. that we refuse. He did, he did a reduced scope of work to attend his other business outside our working hours. So, so there is a different concept to the non-competition. Yes. Non-competition is one legal principle or concept. There's another one that's uh, that's a breach of trust, for example, or a breach of confidential information, or, or using someone's proprietary information. So that's a different claim. And so, for example, in this case, if the employee has ta- or the former employee has taken a certain proprietary know-how from the company, is now using that know-how for his or her own benefit. Uh, there, you can claim the breach of trust or the basic theft. And so that would fall under the criminal law and the, and the, all of these actions are actionable under the criminal law. And on the basis of that criminal judgment, you can later seek compensation. That would be a way, for example, for you to, to prevent somebody from taking your stuff, taking your IP, intellectual property, taking your systems and using them ultimately against you by competing directly with you. So it's less even non-competition. Uh, legal theory, but more in terms of stealing someone's proprietary or confidential information. Thank you, Ludmilla Malava. Joining us live on the line from Yamalava and Paluka, it's Ludmilla Yamalava herself. It's your free legal clinic here on Dubai I 103.8. And I tell you what, it's a busy one. Uh, we are having a special look at employment law and many of you getting in touch looking for clarity on certain guidelines, but also specific questions you might have relating to your job, your contract, your company. 4001 if you need some advice on the show today. Um, a message here, anonymous, and as I always say, that's absolutely fine. Same question, can an employer claw back a part of incentive or bonus payment if some of the conditions of the payment, such as continued service, have not been met. Um, I've resigned before completing the required period of employment. Please keep me anonymous. Does that make sense, Ludmilla? It does, and uh, it really depends because something like that, any kind of bonuses or commissions can be structured, and I have seen this before, as advanced payments. Mm-hmm. Advanced payments would are still con- contingent upon compliance or meeting of certain requirements and therefore if those requirements are not met then yes contractually legally uh, there is um, and again it depends on how the clause is drafted but it, certainly there is an argument a legitimate argument for the employer to expect at least part of that payment back okay so it is uh, it is feasible okay um Let's talk about other possibilities in terms of feasibility. Um, This one, this time from an employer saying, our staff asked us to renew the visa and in six months started misbehaving and has now resigned. Do we have a way to claim back the renewal fees? The fee is too high and for a small business, it's difficult to spend the same fee to employ new staff again. Is there a solution? Uh, No. So that's just cost of, of running a business. And I tell you myself, as I run a business myself, and I know... 
I know the pain and the burden of having to pay all these uh, fees to be able to work legally, mm-hmm. but that's just cost. That's the cost of running a business. And so uh, the law is very clear that the obligation for treatment costs and, and visa costs are the obligation of the business or the company and not the employees. And ultimately, it's um, it's it's for the company ultimately to bear, to to carry the burden of uh, dealing with its employees who perhaps either you know, go rogue later on or just the wrong fit from the beginning. Uh, but that's just part of uh, running a business. And unfortunately, that's, you know, that's, I guess, Pot we all learn from this. And yeah. I've learned myself, but you just you need to vet your employees better. But easier said than done. Thanks, Liv Miller. Um, a message here, and we were just talking earlier about contracts. No name saying, I requested from my company 10 years instead of three years limited contract. Told them if not approved, they can end the relationship. No answer from them yet. Will I be liable or fined for missing the government deadline 1st of Feb? I'm in semi-government, no Ministry of Labour card or contract. The company is registered with Dubai Immigration. Thank you. A great question. No, so the responsibility to change the contract is on the company, not the employee. Uh, so uh, there's no liability there for the employee. One, two, uh, as we just learned uh, last week, the, the deadline has been amended to the end of uh, this year. So there's a lot more time for everybody to comply, and for companies in particular. Uh, three, with regards to the term of contract, um, the um, there is no maximum term of employment contract. It is true that the original labor law, when it came out, not original, but I guess the one that came out last year, um, they did have a clause limiting employment up to three years. Then it was amended shortly thereafter, and now there's no limit to how long your employment relationship can be. So if the employee wants 10 years, it's certainly legally, it's possible to have so. Uh, now, if the company does not want to take to accept the 10, 10 years uh, fixed term, that's up to the company to decide, and there's nothing legal or illegal about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But certainly, uh, at present, given the circumstances of, the, of, of this, of the listener's um, question, they have time to negotiate okay. until the end of the year. Lynn-Million Malava with me this afternoon. It's Afternoons with Helen Farmer, your free legal clinic. We are having a bit of a special look at employment law. So contracts, gratuity, by all means, get in touch. But you're going to have to be fast. We've only got a few minutes left. Now, anonymous message here, Ludmilla, saying my company has announced layoffs and I want to know my rights in case they make my role redundant. I would appreciate any pointers. It's an American company based in the free zone. They've just renewed our contracts, the ones required by the new law. I've been with them for over eight years. My last company in the UK did redundancies and I heard someone rejected the package and they offered more. Is that an option in the UAE? Uh, well, there's always an option to uh, to negotiate better benefits, uh, so that's always an option, but it's really for the companies or for the parties to decide whether that option is a viable option for them. Uh, but the um, the minimum uh, obligations, as far as the company is concerned, in the case of layoffs, is to pay uh, what we call in the UE the end of service uh, or gratuity, and that's after one year of service, which is 21 days of basic salary for every year of service. Uh, and also the notice period, uh, which is a minimum of, of 30 days, depending on the contract. And then unpaid leave and obviously unpaid salary and any unpaid bonuses and commissions. So that's basically the extent of the company's legal obligation uh, towards the employee upon termination of employment agreement. Now, um, the, this is uh, it's interesting because in this case, it's a U.S. company. But even if it we're not a U.S. company, but in, in the UAE, employment relationships are similar to the U.S. in the sense that they are at will. Mm-hmm which means that at any point in time, companies, uh, parties can go their separate ways, be it the company or the employee. There is no obligation or and there's no way to force the company to 
employ someone against the company's will and vice versa. There's no and there's no uh, there's no legal right for a company to demand that the employee continues working for them. So therefore, uh, layoffs is just part of, of that. It's a business decision the company can make to terminate. And as for the new employment law, which is effective now, there is no more additional compensation that employee can ask in the event of a uh, in the event of layoffs. In the past and the previous labor law, there was an option to ask what was called arbitrary dismissal compensation, which is up to three months. And often the companies pay the three months uh, just as an basically, in, particularly in case of layoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for the new law, that arbitrary dismissal compensation only applies in cases where an employee is being terminated as retaliation for reporting the company to a government authority. Okay. So ultimately, it will no longer apply. So therefore, whether it's a layoff or an amicable um, separation, it's, in terms of the benefits, they remain the same. Okay. Thank you for that, Ludmilla. We're having a bit of respite from employment and we're moving over to property. Message here saying, I'm leaving my villa after seven years. Am I required to paint it? I thought no, as I'm there seven years, but our landlord is stipulating that I do. I think is this going to be a it depends answer, Ludmilla? Indeed. So if it is in the contract, then yes, you would be required to, to paint. If it's not in the contract, then there's no legal requirement uh, to um, because uh, that requirement can come out of two ways, either by contract or by law. So the law does not require for tenants to leave their uh, properties freshly painted, uh, but the contract might. And so since the law does not provide for it, if this, but in this particular case, the contract does not provide for it either, then there's no legal grounds for the for the landlords to expect or demand for the uh, for the tenants to repaint the villa fresh. So the burden is on the, the landlord to prove somehow that they should um, have the right to deduct perhaps portion of the security deposit towards painting the villa. But again, the, bur- it's, the burden is on the, on the, on the landlord okay. and it's not at all um, automatically assumed that just because the tenant lived there for seven years, he needs to leave the villa fresh or that he needs to leave the deposit behind. Okay, good luck. And good luck with the move as well. And family law here, um, anonymous message saying, my brother-in-law has signed an agreement with the court to pay a maintenance amount to his wife as they don't stay together. He did not have a job and has not made any payments for the last two years and has gone back to India. He plans to come back to Dubai and wants to know if he's liable to pay. And if yes, his new salary doesn't allow him to pay the same amount. The the wife and children are staying in India. Can you unpack that for us and and help out in this specific case? Certainly, yes. So it depends on what the parties did with that divorce agreement or or that uh, custody or settlement agreement. Uh, so um, it sounds like there was an agreement that was ultimately registered through the courts. So when you have that, basically that kind of agreement almost becomes like a court judgment. Mm-hmm. In other words, it can be enforced. So it may be that the wife, in this case, uh, wouldn't have tried to enforce the agreement uh, because the husband or the father was not paying. Uh, and so in that case, there could be uh, an enforcement case. And as part of the enforcement case, uh, there could be a travel ban and there could be even an arrest warrant. Uh, or there could be uh, a freezing of any other assets that the that the father might have left behind when he left the first time around. So, the, but that's as part of the enforcement proceedings, uh, and that enforcement proceeding would have would have happened if that court judgment or that settlement agreement would have been would have gone through enforcement. Okay. So, um, so the advice here is to check with the authorities, and the authorities could be immigration to see if there's a, for example, a travel ban, and if there's a travel ban, that's a telltale sign that maybe there was enforcement proceedings. And so, so first, 
So if that's the case, first, uh, the listener will have to deal with the uh, with settling that dispute before he can uh, challenge the payment scheme and require or request a different payment, a, settlement, a different payment plan uh, towards the alimony. Uh, but first, before he's a even able to make that argument, he will have to kind of become current and all the outstanding payments uh, that would have accrued by now. But again, that's only in the event that that particular settlement agreement was enforced. Ludmilla, thank you so much. That has been a whistle-stop hour. Thank you so, so much for your time. So much expertise. If anyone has been affected by any of the issues we've been talking about or indeed someone in your life would benefit from listening to that, the podcast will be available very, very shortly indeed. In the meantime, you can find Ludmilla Malava across social media. She keeps you up to date with all the headlines, answers questions and, of course, is live with us every single Monday afternoon. Ludmilla Malava, thank you so, so much. Really, really do appreciate your time. Get back to that busy practice of yours. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.